Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And I'm Eloise Ross. And this week we'll be reviewing Hiromasa Yonibashi's Japanese animated film Mary and the Witch's Flower. We'll be taking a look at the Agnes Varda season at Acme and her new film Faces Places and opening the Cultural Capital Film Diary. But first we're looking at Steven Spielberg's latest film The Post. So, can I ask you a hypothetical question? Oh, dear, I don't like hypothetical questions. Well, I don't think you're going to like the real one either. Do you have the papers? Not yet. This is a devastating security breach that was leaked out of the Pentagon. The most highly classified documents of the war. The Times says 7,000 pages detailing how the White House has been lying about the Vietnam War for 30 years. The way they lied, those days have to be over. Written by Liz Hanna and Josh Singer, with a broadcast of Hollywood greats, The Post is a tale of a short period of time in 1971 when the Washington Post and journalism on the whole was threatened by the United States government when they published the leaked Pentagon Papers. More specifically, it is an historical narrative that returns the focus to Catherine Graham, played by Meryl Streep, who was the publisher of The Post at the time and who should be credited with standing up to the US government cover-up operations. While Ben Bradley, played by Tom Hanks, was key also as editor at the paper, this is really Graham's achievement and she is given intelligence and grace by Streep's portrayal. Andy, how do you think this very high-stakes political event has been depicted in the new film? I think it's been depicted in a really interesting way because ostensibly the Pentagon Papers aren't something that people are that interested in anymore apart from a fairly niche group of people who are either alive to remember it or are very, very interested in government conspiracies and this sort of stuff. Because Daniel Ellsberg is around quite a bit. He turns up, pops up on media as a media commentator sometimes. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he turns up on... Uh, he would be a member of a panel on a debate or something like that because he's still kind of this figurehead and, you know, when he gave Edward Snowden his blessing, you know, it was kind of a mining news story. So it's very interesting in the way that we look at... Like, Spielberg's chosen to look at this because it very much feels as though it's been rushed, I think. And not necessarily in a bad way, but, you know, when uh, he found Hannah and Singer's screenplay, he was like, this needs to go into production right now. I need to get do X, Y, and Z and I need to get it out in time for Oscar season because this is the story that kind of sums up a lot of the themes of 2017. So I think it's interesting that he's done it very, very much with a 2017 audience in mind and I think that means uh, that it's going to date in a strange way. That's really interesting that you suggest possibly it might have been rushed into production. It's very well made and it's very in the moment, very affecting, but I almost immediately have forgotten so much about <laughs> right. it interesting. because I just don't think it does enough in terms of telling the story. It repeats on and on about how it's a high stakes moment, um, that there's a lot at stake, that you know people could go to prison, blah, 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 but then it just wraps it up all very quickly. So I wonder whether there might have been other elements in the screenplay that have been left out or things that were sidelined. Um, yeah, I felt it was coming from a, to get Yeah, I totally agree. I think it was coming from a back foot in that way. It felt kept feeling the need that we had to be reminded how important this was. You know, he's going to start the movie at the Vietnam, you know, in the Vietnam War. So that's going to become a part. You know, all, pretty much every major cultural event from the early 70s gets drawn in somehow and it feels in, it, he needs to convince the audience of how important this is. Like you're right, it's totally beautifully put together. It's fine. It's obviously a master craftsman. Every, the acting is, you know, cr- extremely solid across the board. Great to see Cross and Odenkirk turning up in these fairly you know, straight roles, which is kind of cool. He was very good. Yeah, yeah, everybody's really good. You know, Stuhlbarg turns up again. You yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah, it's had a good year, hasn't he's it? He's a great year, yeah. So I'm, I was almost expecting Timothy Chalamet to turn up. <laughs> he's turning up in everything else. Yeah, I mean, it was great and it was fine, but, yeah, it felt like it was underselling itself in a way because 
you know, it is an important story, but it, it doesn't... I don't know, it seems, seems like the story feels like it needs better treatment in a way because there was such a desperation to push the gendering of the newsroom, which is, of course, an extremely important story in itself. But, he, you know, it was just done over and over again and it wasn't done in a you'll obs- let, he'll let you observe it way. You have to be told. No, no, it wasn't subtle at all. No, and no. I was thinking, you know, perhaps there are people who aren't as attuned to um, gender politics or to women being shut down who aren't going to pick up on this. Even yeah. it's kind of shoved down your throat. But there are moments. I mean, I fa- did find them quite beautiful and great that you know in the in the boardroom meeting at the beginning no one's listening to Meryl Streep and then her male advisor says the exact same stuff as she does and and they all listen to him and that kind of thing like that's very obvious and very hurtful and I'm sure is is what happened there's a moment later on where she leaves Meryl Streep leaves the congressional hearing and there's this kind of slow pan through the crowd as she's walking out and everyone in the front row is a woman just kind of looking at her in awe and being stunned at what amazing thing she's achieved, which is very true. Yeah. But it's very much Spielberg's acknowledging that Graham has been left out of history, left out of all of the president's men, yes. that kind of yeah. thing. Um, and so giving her back her, her place. Yeah, which is a great story. I just felt like it was a bit clumsily told sometimes. It felt more like a Robert Redford film, actually, because there's so much of the 70s iconography. There's a lot of assumed social morals that you're going to be on the same page as and the film is, is going to assume that you're... You know, you don't, you're not going to need to question whether the press is, you know, press freedom is really important or not, because he's going to, he seems to be making it for other men in the film industry to go, hey, look, you know, this is another story about a powerful woman that hasn't mm. been told before. There's a whole bunch of more stories like this out there, probably. That's true, and I mean, it was great, very well done. I just feel like it lost its power in its ending because it, it's a tale about some really important stuff that happened that apparently led to a lot of like, you know, the ending was this great new dawn for press freedom and all of that. But then it just, it moves on. Yeah. The film moves on. The final shot moves on. And I couldn't tell whether the final shot was being ironic or whether it was a disappointing ending, whether it was some quick kind of, you know, fun comment or whether it was naive, but it just felt like it, it didn't do any of the people who were involved in the story justice by mm. kind of just moving on very yeah. quickly. I mean, because Josh Singer co-wrote uh, Spotlight, which he won an Academy Award for, mm. and that was much more about the shoe leather, actual journalism, whereas here the Pentagon Papers are just kind of like, like yeah, it's much more about the publishing and the risks taken yeah. in, in actually getting the story out there rather than the story itself. Yeah, there, there was yes, that's true. That's true. And, I mean, that's important. But it just seemed as though, like, what the film is saying was that there was only one risk and that that was overcome and then everything was, yeah, you know, yeah. hunky-dory after that. And mm. I, I don't think that was the case, was mm. it? So, no. Anyway, but it's a great film. I was very impressed by it and I was thinking a lot about the editing and composition because I was prepared for it to be very good in all of those ways and it absolutely was. It's a solid film. Yeah, because it did rush straight to the top of the um, most likely to win Oscars list when it, in a few weeks after it came out. Ah, okay, good. So I'm not sure where it's standing there now because it didn't do that well at the Golden Globes. It didn't do well at all. But it's still definitely like prestige picture, Spielberg, Hanks, Streep, you're going to... Yes, Street it's bitch laps Bradley Whitford in a gold caftan. <laughs> Very good, everyone should see it. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Take your folks to it. They'll yeah. probably like it too. Come on, Peter, let's go. Mary, stop. Everyone knows you're not supposed to go into the woods on misty days. I found it in the woods. The witch's flower. They only bloom once every seven years. They say witches used to seek it out. Ah! What is going on? Ah! Ah! 
In 2015, a team of producers broke away from the famed Japanese animation house Studio Ghibli to form a new company, Studio Ponok. Their first film arrives two and a half years later in the form of Mary and the Witch's Flower. Mary and the Witch's Flower follows a young girl named Mary who is spending the summer at her great aunt's house in the countryside. One day, while traipsing through the woods next door, she discovers a magical flower which brings a nearby broomstick to life. The broomstick wrenches Mary high above the clouds to a floating island that is home to a school for witches. The school is run by a slightly intimidating old woman and her scientist counterpart who show Mary the ropes and are quickly convinced that she is something of a prodigy. Mary, however, has rather less confidence in her own abilities. Before long, she learns that the boy who she befriended in her village is in grave danger and she is forced to embrace the new powers that have been bestowed upon her. Illustrated in the style popularised by Studio Ghibli, I found Mary and the Witch's Flower to possess the same endearing qualities that made director Hiramasa Yonebayashi's previous film, the Oscar-nominated When Marnie Was There, so resonant. The movie is screening in two versions, subtitled with the original Japanese audio and dubbed into English. Jim Broadbent, Kate Winslet and the BFG's Ruby Barnhill all lend their voices to this version, which is the one that we saw. Andy, were you bewitched by Mary? Uh, I was, yeah. I'm automatically pretty predisposed to Japanese animation of this sort because it's such a lovingly constructed um, form of mm. cinema. And so it's always really, really nice to dive into these sort of worlds, especially when they're so beautifully meticulously realised. Um, I was a little worried that Studio Ponok would be without the sort of surrealistic flourishes that, that are so much a part of the Studio Ghibli's canon. But um, there are plenty of them here. It's, it's kind of sweet. It's, it's aimed a little younger. I guess it's much more when Marnie was there than, say, Spirited Away or Princess Mononoke or something like that. But for the most part, I thought it was really quite sweet and strong. And it's nice to get away from summer blockbusters and awards-worthy contending films that seem to be what you can see in cinemas at the moment. Ruby Barnhill, I find a little on the whiny side, maybe. Little broomstick, little broomstick sort of thing <laughs> got a bit tiring. But um, for the most part, I thought it was really great. Mm. Yeah. How about you, Elou? I... I enjoyed it. I really did like it. I liked it visually. I thought some of the, the drawings were beautiful and the depiction of her fantasy and imagination and this world in the clouds was, was glorious. Uh, it was a little slow, I thought. Yeah, Perhaps the beginning. Yeah. Even throughout some of the, the middle, um, I thought it was a little bit slow. It just seemed to, perhaps because it didn't have that sophistication as a film like Spirited Away and it didn't have so much, I guess, fast pace that, that needed to be kept up with in terms of the narrative. Although it could have, I think, if it was restructured just slightly, mm, um, yeah. have had a faster pace. It did seem to kind of lag a little bit for me. And I, I don't know whether that means it's going to be more appealing to children or less. Um, I'm a little bit distanced from that kind of understanding at this point. But but for me, that it, it didn't seem quite as strong as some of those other films. But I did, I did really enjoy it. Mm. Yeah. I uh, I hate to be boring, but I agree completely with what you both <laughs> said. I noticed the lagging too, which was interesting because it only goes for about an hour and a half, an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, yeah, I think there was a bit of a pacing issue there. But apart from that, I enjoyed how sort of small scale it was and, and how interior this... It didn't have the sort of world-spanning stakes that you frequently see in films where, like, the main character gets a, a super ability and has to go save the world. Like, this is very much reduced to her story, Mary, and 
her relationships in this town. And that was it. There was sort of no real signalling to a world beyond her and um, the characters she knew. So I really, I liked that a lot. It sort of gave it a sort of charming, um, I don't know, like a, a sort of a tangibility to what was going on, I guess, which I appreciated. It made that sort of imaginative world that the film conjures just seem much more resonant and imaginative by virtue of the fact that it wasn't this huge epic yeah. Um, tale. Yeah, and it's, in, and it's in a very interesting world because it's the it, Hughes to Mary Stewart's background of it being set in the English countryside. Mm. That it's this strange blend of the English countryside and rolling hills, constable clouds as you're floating above these gorgeous mm. manor houses and things like that, but with Japanese like signs and all this sort of stuff. So it's, it, it is a strange world that it's a bit maybe more in the form of like Howl's Moving Castle, which was an adaptation as well. So it's maybe belongs in more in that sort of canon. I thought particularly the first 10 to 15 minutes were really slow and I can f- imagine if it turns up on a streaming service, a lot of kids will be bored with it before it actually kicks into gear, which would be a shame. There's a little bit of, of pleasure in that, you know, oh, just yeah, the wandering around, I suppose. Yeah, I'm just you know, thinking so. if you're coming off the back of, you know, Cars 2, then mm. you're going to be, like, a bit bored. But I thought... It, uh, Peter was interesting. The fact that he looks like a really young Rod Stewart. You know, <laughs> this kind of backwards mullet, undercut. Yeah, I loved his hair. It's so yeah. bad. It's awesome. <laughs> I think, yeah, it seems really strange. Yeah. yeah, I did love a lot of the characters, you know, that it was about this young girl and her, as it turns out, you know, very strong um, great aunt with a past, you know, and that they can speak in their own language, yeah. you know, with their own kind of understanding to this point where the girl learns from a, another woman in her family um, who she may have looked past in the in the past peter i i quite liked i love the two cats i love when you know um they have their own personality and kind of they seem as though they know about the magic before the magic actually happens the two main characters uh, in the the school dr d and yeah madam mumblechook they were just so great i mean that kind of imagery of the woman who stands up straight and then the kind of slightly, um, you know, disfigured male accomplice um, is so strong in the history of not only animation films but but all sorts of films, you know, stories like this going back. And so I found that very strong and very enticing and I think, you know, they were two two great portraits of of people Um, and I love that little insight into their past as well. Um, You know, that was all really good. So maybe it is, you know, like a really brilliant portrait. I do just think that it needed to be a little bit faster to kind of get to the magic point but then as I said perhaps there is some wonder in in the discovery and in maybe knowing I mean all of the advertising suggests that there is this magic kingdom somewhere and so perhaps in the knowing that that's going to come yeah. is, is part of the wonder of it. I mean this is what's interesting is that it is a bit conservative in the sense that it seems to be suggesting there's lots of pleasure to be found in the bucolic English slash Japanese countryside without all of this magic. It's so often the message in children's films is that they say, know enough of this, make believe, I'm going back to normality and I'm going to be a good little girl. Yeah, Yeah, and these kids were extremely good. Like Peter gets extremely excited about the prospect of a jar of jam. Yeah, I know. And, <laughs> and like she very uh, keenly sweep, sweeping That's And that's, and that's his garlic. main motivator to come, is to come <laughs> back and be able to help out more on the farm. It's these complete fairy tale creations of kids that I'm not sure. I mean, I guess, you know, kids are going to be used, 
to it reading about these sorts of kids in books because but they don't I don't know if they really exist do they? Well, yeah, well they were very well behaved. They're extremely. <laughs> they exist. Well they ex- yeah. exist in so many film narratives though. Yeah. I mean mm. there is obviously like the naughty children trope, but there is always this like and it's it's often in response to some imagination that goes too far or that they wish fulfillment occurs and they get to this magic kingdom, but then the magic turns out to be more dangerous than than wondrous, and so that makes them kind of get back into. Yeah, you know but, the straight and narrow. But it's almost like yeah. a Blytonian sort of kid innocence that is more about written about what an adult imagines another adult would think a good kid was like, <laughs> rather than an accurate depiction. Yeah, of kids. Uh, yeah, and that's in, yeah, that's that is interesting. I'm, and you know that may or may not be problematic, but at the same time, I I found it really really charming. It was a charming. Yeah, film. it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a good time. I don't mean to put it down. It's I love Kate Winslet as a bad baddie. But I wish we'd seen it in the um, undubbed version. In oh, the yeah, Japanese we should point out we did see it dubbed. Yeah, yeah, we went to a media screening and yeah. it was dubbed, um, which I thought um, – I didn't realise until kind of the morning that we were going to see it, but I have looked at the Cinema Nova page and they asked Madman is screening it in both versions. Yeah. Great, okay. Dubbed or subtitled, so you can choose. It's definitely up to you, but whenever I'm watching one of these films on DVD, I'll always choose the, the subtitled versions. Yeah, uh, yeah, always. Yeah. Um, that's Mary and the Witch's Flower screening and limited release. Which brings us to this episode's film diary. On January 12, the Melbourne-based film enthusiasts Cinemaniacs are hosting the Hagsploitation Festival, which describes itself as the first ever film festival dedicated to the Grand Dame Grugnau or the Psycho Biddy subgenre of horror. Yes. Plug Hagsploitation into Google for more details about that. The Pop International Film Festival aims to expand the filmmaking community to use different actors for traditional films and to provide a platform for underrepresented film genres. It does this by showcasing actor-nominated short and feature films such as Miro, The Australian Patient and Karma Island. The Pop International is happening on January 16 at the Kingston Arts Centre in Narrabin. On January 11, the Astor is screening Yorgoth Lanthimos' Killing of a Sacred Deer and Dogtooth. January 15th sees the horror double bill of Suspiria and Zombie, and the double bills continue with two of Hayao Miyazaki's best films, Spirited Away and Ponyo, on January 17. The documentary Step, about the social impact of a Baltimore dance school, is screening at Acme until January 18th. As Step finishes, the Agnes Varda season begins. Real-time new wave classic Cleo from 5 to 7, about Corinne Marchant's pop star anxiously walking around Paris, visiting friends as she awaits some medical results, is screening from January 18 until February 11. The Beaches of Agnes is Varda's impressionistic collage of her life and legacy and a love letter to cinematic history, and that runs from January 22 until February 10. A 1981 documentary about Los Angeles and their murals Murmurs screens from January 21 to February 8. The Gleaners and I from 2000 is Varda's most popular film, and that's a celebration of resourcefulness, the nourishment of creativity and the power of art to awaken humanism, and that runs from January 19 until February 3. And finally, 17 years later, comes the film we're about to review, Faces Places. Moi, j'ai 33 ans. Et toi, je dirais plutôt que tu as 88 printemps. Le truc rigolo, c'est qu'on va faire un film ensemble. Bah ouais, c'est ça le point de départ. So Faces Places is about Agnes Varda and the artist J.R. and they visit villages and small towns throughout France to meet communities of people and create larger portraits of them to plaster on the surroundings. It's screened out of competition at the 2017 Cannes Film Festival. Faces Places is currently the front runner to for Best Documentary Academy Award and she just received an Honorary Academy Award. Um, in four months, Agnes Varda turns 90. 
Um, she's basically one of the last um, members of the French New Wave. And in the year, last 20 years or so, she's been kind of re-situated as the actual secret pioneer and one of the, the founders of the whole... She made the first film in yeah, the French so she made New the first Wave, film. Yeah. Uh, La Pointe Court, and that was in 1954. And um, as we all know, then, you know, Truffaut was around and got up, made uh, Breathless in 1959. And so... Uh, because of the way the history works, you know, that they all kind of took credit for the French New Wave. But she was, no doubt, the first person to to be a part of it and to, to make it a, a big thing. And The Point Court is uh, an incredible film, like so um, insightful in terms of being about just people living in a small fishing village, about relationships, about romance. And it's like so acutely aware of cinematic composition editing, all of that. And Agnes Varda hadn't seen a single film before that. And I think the story goes that she showed it to Elaine René, who was a friend of hers and was a main member of the Left Bank film group in France. And he said something like, oh, there's, you know, tinges of Rossellini in this, like, you're, this is a great film. And she said, I've never seen anything by him before. You know, there's really something special about her. And that she was erased from that, that history is, is, uh, is unfair, no doubt. But she's by no means, you know, an unknown. She's, she's done so much in terms of documentary and art installations. And even, f- I mean, she has made fictions, as we know, as um, you talked about, Claire, from five to seven as well. But, yeah, she's, she's so key to the movement and has done so much. So from, can you see th- similar themes running throughout her work from that, from her early stuff, Point Court? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in the Point Court there's this really particular shot, maybe it's the opening shot where the camera pans out from like a chair or something, a, a chair just belonging to one of the fishermen um, and then kind of goes and pans out into a wider shot and then goes into the village and it just seems to be that it's a comment on you know making visible the minutiae of everyday life and of unremarkable lives and the fact that personalities and portraits of people and histories of lives can be found just in pieces of furniture or pieces scattered around a town in in walls or in villages or in steps you know she's in architecture she she does this and so by the time we get to faces places you can see that she's um, because of her association with JR in this film rather than finding histories in world in walls or in places that she discovers she goes and she puts the the history of the people I mean it's it's kind of allegorical but puts you know images of people who who are from these smaller villages onto walls and buildings of the places that she travels to and that's what's really really wonderful so there's definitely a connection between what she was doing in the 50s and, and now remarkable I I mean I really loved this documentary a lot I think it explores some quite complex territory in a funny emotionally moving and qu- quite light way and it's sort of a delicate of touch to the the way the film's put together uh, which you don't really get in fil- uh, in many films anyway that explore such complex vital theme so i guess i mean uh, it's worth sort of saying well what the on a basic level what this film's about so um on on a basic level it sort of functions as an observational travelish documentary so vada and this artist jr travel around france um mostly to regional towns and they stage these the sort of jr sort of well known for these pieces of art where they take photos of sort of everyday people um in various places and then 
print them on huge scales and then like paste them up onto the sides of buildings or hillsides, that kind of stuff. And so on one level, it's just this film's a series of vignettes of them visiting different locations, talking to everyday people in these environments, getting their stories and then celebrating them really through these humongous pasted portraits, which are really quite visually stunning to see really so that's sort of on one level and I appreciated the the honesty of these subjects not you know some of them feel a bit uncomfortable or a bit weird about being exaggerated to such a high um, level and they all sort of talk about this in a very sort of open way which is great so that's, yeah like it's not some kind of magic solution for all of them yes, to be put up yes on, exactly on these, and, on and they're wheels. unafraid to to sort of criticise their own artistic practice, I yeah. guess, through, the, through that way. So you have all of that going on. And then you have this Agnes Varda herself as a subject of the film. And she really becomes, I think, the second subject of the film. And even though they both make it Agnes and JR and he's very much in it, he's sort of very willing to stand aside and let Varda take over. In fact, he sort of wants it to become a portrait of her as much as it is about everyone else. There's this excursion to meet Jean-Luc Godard and that's sort of quite extraordinary and a very personal, interesting moment as well. So you've got all of this stuff going on and you've at the centre of it you have this odd couple between this old small woman and a tall young man and, yeah, it's just, I don't know, there's, it's funny very emotional and very complex. So true that they're like an odd couple. They are, um, they? And, you know, it's like a road trip film and they're an odd couple. And, I mean, I think that he loves her and you can see that in, in the Absolutely. space that he gives her to talk and in the questions that he asks her and that he's very, you know, generous to her expressing her opinion. And so that's all really wonderful as well because as as people who are watching this film, people who know Varda, I think, you know, inevitably love her, I, th- I will hope that it reaches people who maybe perhaps don't know who Varda is and then through JR's eyes and through the eyes of the film will come to also understand who she is. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, I mean, I'm aware of Agnes Varda and of her enormous influence, but I don't think I've ever seen uh, a film of hers before I saw this. And it was function as a really, really good introduction to her career and just why she is who she is. So, yeah, you absolutely don't need to be fully acquainted with her to see the film um, at all. Yeah, it's like, wonderful because it uses, it, um, you know, uses artefacts from her past mm. films in order to create, I mean, you know, it's that, like, classic French New Wave s- sense of bricolage, right? Like, it uses mm. artefacts from her past film work to make points in this new film which is really beautiful i mean that bit where she looks at her foot and says it looks like a potato and then there's a cut to a potato like that was beautiful um i kind of teared up with that i think i was crying <laughs> this whole film but yeah like it's really beautiful that it it does have this connection to even though it is about um i mean i really like that you say that there is the one narrative is about it um focusing on the lives of everyday people in rural france that secondly that sh- you know it's about her and it's about her story i really like that and it's like i think that's that's totally true. Um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting combination of being about France but not about Paris, but being about art but not about making art. Like in the actual, like as far as we see, somebody takes a photo, the next thing we see is being pasted up. There's no actual creation at that point. We just see it's the capturing of the image and then the effect. So it's pretty much as she's giving over as much of the art making process to the community as possible, and the way that that's interpreted, and whether it's painted over or whether it's. Mm these kids tickling the feet of their mum who's suddenly giant size on the on wall of this 
you know, in this place, in this town in France. So it's a really, really interesting combination of that because she seems like in the Galenas and I to be looking at her own life and the way that she sees art and the way what's important to her. And and I think a lot of how much you love artists films depends on how much you like you have an interest in humanity and in creati- creativity because she seems to be going right to the heart of this and taking it as far away as possible from galleries and these sorts of places exactly. where you actually yeah. you know, are meant to uh, consume art. And so it's, it's got this beautiful way. You barely ever see anybody else doing it this powerfully and this effectively and this humbly as well. Yeah, yeah. She says, I think, I can't remember where it is, but in an interview she gave recently, she said, I like to make films about people who aren't spoken about. And, you know, she's obviously not, going around and saying that she's uh, amazing and she's the hero of the unseen people. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But that's what she does with her films. You know, she does this artistic gleaning. And, I mean, I think you're right, Andy. Like, she, it's, it's, this film is not about the art process, but it's about just the um, making visible of, of what she wants to make visible and that's yeah. what's important. Yeah, and, and again, you know, it's hard to take it away from current affairs where these are the people voting for the far-right parties. These are the people who have been forgotten and ignored by people in Paris who are making laws. And, you know, and the political system and that sort of stuff. And so it's really interesting to kind of just get given this, these are the people, these are their lives and politics is completely ignored. Yeah, I haven't even considered <laughs> yeah. that, but, but yeah. Yeah. I love the bit where she, when she goes to uh, back to Normandy and uh, enlarges and pastes a photo of Guy Badan that she took years ago on a fallen bunker and it, it takes however long it takes, you know, we just see it in whatever it's called, fast cam, what, what do they mm. call that? Anyway, the following day, the sea has washed it away and she says something like, the sea always has the final word. And I really love that. I mean, she's a poet and she's so poetic and so beautiful and she's doesn't seem to be upset by the fact that, that the photo has been washed away, but I'm sure that there's some sort of sadness in her. But I love that she says this, like the sea has the last word and it, it is this comment that exists in this ongoing, like centuries of literature and poetry that talk about the sea in this way and that that's just beautiful and she's, well, it's the master, it wins. Mm. So, yeah. so what? The film quite explicitly deals with her mortality too, which is very interesting and she has very frank and again, poetic conversations. JR asks her at one point, you know, whether she fears death, and she says, "Oh no, not at all." Like, yeah, that, what does that she will say? Be that that'll be that. Yeah, that I will think. be uh, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, right. oh, yeah that'll, that'll be that. Uh, so it's it's so there's all of this stuff in this movie. You have you, from her mortality to her career to the lives of yeah, rural France. All of this in this film, and yet it's so lightly made, and not once. Does it ever feel like you're drowning in stuff going on? Like, it's just amazing that all of this is in there and yet it's so watchable and it feels so light and... It feels really uplifting, but there's some really serious and, like, sober subject matter in there, yeah. Yeah. I I think that's extraordinary. I think it's a really, yeah, it's a wonderful film. And only 89 minutes. Only 89 minutes. How? How? Yeah. Yeah. Not even ninety minutes. Wow! Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of filmmakers could learn a lot from this. Yeah, definitely. They sure could. I saw this at Il Cinema Ritrovato in Bologna. Oh, you did? In, yes. Um, I believe it screened on the last night of the festival, so in early July, and the festival doesn't screen 
much or any I mean it's not it's raised on date for the screen um, new releases but Agnes Varda has a lot to do with a festival and with um, restoring films and so and since um, Faces Places kind of speaks to her career and her past and her ongoing film work which began in the 50s they had screened it and she was in attendance and kind of and she and JR both were there and, oh and introduced it and then did a Q&A afterwards and she um, I was sitting in the front row and I was just like couldn't believe it it was the most amazing thing that had ever happened so it's screened at El Cinema Retrovado and that, that was where I saw it in this um, you know amazing piazza outdoors on this big screen in the middle of Bologna um, on a summer night um, and it was it was perfect uh, but I think that the film has magic any way you see it any way you might see it as we'll no doubt all discuss I, I mean I, I think that there are other Agnes Varda films that are better but I do look, I think that this has um, a lot of really, really great qualities. Yeah, so that, uh, well, that's screening. At where, Acme. At yes. Acme. And Cinema Also Nova. at Cinema Nova, um, which is good. I'm glad that it's getting some more exposure. But if you wanted to catch some other of the Agnes Varda films, hopefully our discussion has made you keen to get out and, and do that. So, so we recommend it. Definitely, yeah. Uh, thank you very much for making it to the end of episode 40 of Cultural Capital. If you want to rate or review us on iTunes, we'll be extremely grateful. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. And you can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Anders Furs. And I'm at Eloise Lowe Ross. Thank you very much. Anything goes back to